The following audio is from Delta Church in Springfield, Illinois. Our purpose is to proclaim the gospel through the church to a world that needs Jesus Christ. We pray this sermon will aid and encourage your daily walk with Jesus. For more information about Delta, you can visit us online at deltachurch.net. Well, good morning, saints in the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, Saints here in Springfield and in Auburn. Uh, why don't you go ahead and turn on, turn up your copy of Scripture. We're in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 6 this morning. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. Uh, we're going to slow down a little bit. Uh, originally, we were going to look at 1 through 16, but as I'll explain here in a couple of minutes, it just seemed to be uh, wise to slow down and actually turn our attention uh, to a smaller chunk of Scripture uh, and try to understand this whole idea of unity and diversity and how that leads to maturity in, in the church. So we're going to see this idea of unity come through very strong this morning, verses 1 through 6. So the Apostle Paul, our brother in Christ, remember he's writing to Christians, he's writing to believers in a city called Ephesus, he's being carried along by the Holy Spirit, and this is what he writes as he wrote to to these believers. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1, Paul says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. This is the word of the Lord. Well, as I've said here a couple of times, our sermon title this morning is Unity of the Spirit. That is just sitting right there in verse 3. That is really the major crux of these verses 1 through 6. Paul is now transitioning into the practical, concrete application of what new life in Christ looks like. And he's going to talk about what it looks like in terms of unity, unity that's found in the Spirit. The main idea is just simply flowing right in line with that. The main idea that comes from out of our verses this morning is that a healthy church is marked by spiritual unity. Remember, he's writing to Christians. He's writing to the church in Ephesus, Jew, Gentile. He is talking to them about the glories of new life in Christ. And the question becomes, how should we live in light of this new life in Christ? He says, church, you will march forward in a healthy way if you march forward marked by spiritual unity, unity that is found in the Spirit, the Holy Spirit. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to pray for us this morning, and then we'll turn our attention to the text before us. So join me wherever you are this morning. I'm going to encourage you to join me in prayer as we pray for the preaching of God's word. So let's pray. Father, we ask that you would come move in power, move in might. We need you to open our eyes, open our ears, open our minds, open our eyes to see Jesus in the text. Open our ears to hear our need for Jesus from the text, to open our minds to understand the scriptures in the text. 
Ultimately, what we need right now is what Paul prayed for last week, and that is the strength of the Spirit's power to be able to understand what it means for us to walk in unity. So, Father, I pray that the next several minutes now would not just be merely a demonstration of words, but it would be a demonstration of the Spirit, a demonstration of the gospel, a demonstration of the power of God seen in the proclamation of the Word of God, but because it all points forward to the Son of God and our need for Him. It is in the powerful name of Christ the King I pray. Amen. Think about this, that in the course of time, there have been many famous works, famous letters, famous books, whatever it might be, famous works that have been written from jail. In 1963, imprisoned in a Birmingham jail as a participant in demonstrations against segregation, Martin Luther King Jr. wrote what would eventually come to be known as Letter from Birmingham Jail. You skip backward a couple centuries further, you land yourself in the year 1661, and while imprisoned in Bedford County Jail for refusing to stop preaching, an old Puritan named John Bunyan in a 12-year prison sentence came to write what we know as the Pilgrim's Progress. But way before Martin Luther King Jr., way before John Bunyan, way before these two men wrote as prisoners, we learn from our Bible that the Apostle Paul, too, was such a man. For the second time now in the letter to the Ephesians, Paul is reminding us that while he may have been a prisoner of Caesar in Rome, he was more importantly a prisoner for the Lord, he says there in verse 1. And it was while he was a prisoner for Christ Jesus, which is what he said back in chapter 3, verse 1, that he came to write this letter that we've been studying now for the past several weeks, the letter we know as Paul's letter to the Ephesians, this letter to the Christians in the city of Ephesus. Now, as I began my studies this week, my aim was to initially this morning preach Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 16, to cover those 16 verses in a single sermon. Because as Paul makes his transition into the back half of this letter, his basic idea in these 16 verses is sort of like this unity formula. What he's going to tell us in these 16 verses is that it's unity plus diversity that will result in the maturity of the church. Diversity in peoples, diversity in the gifts that Christ gives to his people. This diversity is not a liability. This diversity is actually a blessing because it's when this diversity shows itself in unity that unity and diversity actually will result in the maturity of the church in the world today. So my thought was, man, it would be good just to lay that whole chunk on us this morning, verses 1 through 16. But... Because of the cultural moment that we're in, I felt that we would be better served by slowing down these 16 verses, slowing down this section of scripture so we could actually tackle this unity formula in two parts. And so what we're going to concentrate on this morning is the first part of that unity formula, that idea of unity that we find in the spirit. You see, listen. 
if it's true what Paul's been talking to us about the church, if it's true that God displays his manifold wisdom through the church, and this is true, this is what God does, and if it's true that the church is to be the local display of God's glory in the world today, and this is true, this is the purpose of the church, to be a local display of God's glory. And if it's true that it's possible for the church to experience the power and to experience the love that Paul prayed for last week. And it is true, the church can experience these things through the strength of the Spirit's power. Then it is incumbent upon you and it is incumbent upon me to listen to what Paul says as he rolls from the end of chapter 3 and crosses the threshold into chapters 4, 5, and 6 because Paul's prayer for power, Paul's prayer for love marks this absolutely crucial transition from the mind-stretching theology of chapters 1 through 3 into the down-to-earth, concrete, practical implications for the church in chapters 4, 5, and 6. This prayer for power and love is the linchpin. It's the hinge upon which Paul's letter to the Ephesians turns. In chapters 1 through 3, remember what we've been studying for the past several weeks. We have been stuttering, studying the glories of God's saving grace found in the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul has repeatedly shoved us out into the deeps of the gospel. He has done this over and over again. He has called out what God the Father has done in Christ to create a community, a new community of people rooted and grounded in the gospel. But now in chapters 4, 5, and 6, Paul is going to show how this new gospel people are to live in order to visibly illustrate their new life in Christ. As we're going to see here in several, several minutes, this is how the gospel is repeatedly laid out before us in the scriptures. There are the indicatives of the gospel, the statements of fact, these truths that this is what it looks like to be in Christ. This is what it looks like to be elected. This is what it looks like to be adopted. This is what it looks like to be redeemed. This is what it looks like to be forgiven. He just laid out before us fact, fact, fact. Sinner saved by grace. This is what it looks like. But Paul is not satisfied to let us just be resting on the indicatives of the gospel. He's going to turn us to the imperatives of the gospel, those commands of the gospel that say because this is true in Christ this is what you are to do in light of what God has done you see in Christianity at large unfortunately many many people have pumpkin heads full of doctrine concerning the gospel but for numerous reasons this gospel knowledge fails to translate into practical, everyday gospel living. So to fight against this disconnect, Paul turns to how the church can visibly demonstrate their in-Christness by first turning to the unity that is to be displayed visibly 
in the church with one another. So if the church in Ephesus, or for that matter, if the church in Springfield, if the church in Auburn is going to be a healthy church, a healthy church that is marked by spiritual unity, then the question can be this, what are we called to do in light of what God has already done in Christ? Paul says there's three answers for this question. And the first answer is this, we will walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. We will walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. This is what we can do in light of what God has already done. Walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. You just see that there in verse 1. Look at what Paul writes. I therefore, he says, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you, notice, to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. See, if you pay attention to the language of the Bible, you will begin to notice what one theologian calls the grammar of the gospel. So just like there are grammatical rules that help us understand languages in this world today, there are grammatical rules, so to speak, to help us understand the gospel, says this theologian. And one such rule is something I've already given you um, a heads up on. It's this rule called the indicative imperative rule. What God has accomplished in Christ, these indicatives that we've just talked about couple of minutes ago what God has accomplished in Christ these things are the ground for our faithfulness to him or to take this indicative imperative rule and to put it another way the proper response to grace we have received in Christ is to be our obedience to Christ or to take that same indicative imperative rule and to put it even more simply, we can say this, grace fuels godliness. Grace is to fuel our godliness. For Paul, this indicative imperative rule, this proper response to grace received, this idea that grace fuels godliness, Paul, in this letter to the Ephesians and in other letters as well, what he does is he summarizes this, this concept with the single action to walk. To walk. You see, grace from God is what propels us to walk in the good works prepared by God. Paul said as much back in Ephesians 2 verse 10 when he said those who've been saved by grace are created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should notice walk in them. In his letter to Titus Paul doubled down on this truth when he said the grace of of God has appeared. The grace of God has appeared, not only bringing salvation for all people, but the grace of God has appeared, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and the grace of God has appeared, training us to live self-controlled, upright, upright and godly lives in the present age. So, the good news of God's grace is not just for salvation only. 
We are saved by grace, but then we move forward in sanctification by grace. We are saved by grace. Grace brings salvation for all people, but our godliness goes forward. It marches forward. It moves forward. It grows forward by grace as well. You see, Paul understands that the two-step march of the Christian life is grace and obedience. Grace and obedience. So we go marching through the Christian life on the left foot of grace and the right foot of obedience. It's grace. God has saved me. That compels me to want to be obedient to my Savior. So I obey him, and that makes me go, man, thank God for grace. And then grace compels me to obey him. And then sometimes I fail in my obedience. And what I don't do is go running off into the corner, but I go, man, I need more grace. We are sort of bipeds of the gospel. Human beings are bipeds. We've got two legs upon which we march. It would be ridiculous if someone with two legs was trying to go in around being a uniped, just hopping on one foot. We'd be like, no, you weren't created to do that. You've got two legs. March forward through life on those two legs. There are a lot of us in the gospel who are trying to be unipeds of the gospel where we just hop around on the grace foot, never actually moving forward to obeying the Savior by whom we've been saved by grace. Some of us are over here hopping on one foot, the foot of obedience, trying to knuckle down, bootstrap this Christian walk by just simply obeying, 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 not realizing that grace is the fuel for obedience. Paul is just simply mixing these things together, saying, no, no, grace, obedience, they are the two-step march of the gospel. This is how we go through life. So it's no surprise then that Paul calls us in verse 1 to walk in a manner worthy of the calling we've received. This truth of walking, it pops up all over in the letter to the Ephesians. Ephesians 4.17, Paul says, we must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. In Ephesians 5.2, we are to walk in love. Ephesians 5.8, we are to walk as children of light. Ephesians 5.15, we are to be careful to walk in wisdom. The implication in all of this is that it is possible for the saints in Christ to walk in a manner unworthy of the gospel call we've received. You see an example of this if you go into Galatians chapter 2, verse 14, where the Apostle Paul rebukes the Apostle Peter because his conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel. You see, what Paul knows is that in Christ, we are now fellow citizens in God's kingdom. And according to the grace we've received in Christ, we are to behave as citizens worthy of the gospel of Christ. Philippians chapter 1, verse 27. So, to grow in spiritual unity, remember verses 1 through 6, summed up in this idea of growth in spiritual unity. If we are to grow in this unity of the Spirit, we will walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. But not only that, the second thing Paul shows us is we will also maintain the unity of the Spirit. We will also maintain the unity of the Spirit. We see that in verses 2 and 3. 
So as Paul moves from verse 1 into verses 2 and 3, he now explains this is what it looks like to walk in a worthy manner. So if you're over here going, okay, great, I understand that the Christian life is grace-fueling godliness. It's the forward march of grace-obedience, grace-obedience, one fueling the other. The question then becomes, like, what does that worthy walk look like? Paul, do you help us? And he says, I do help you. Look at verses 2 and 3. Walk this way, says Paul, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. You see, a church marked by spiritual unity will be a church marked by these five qualities. Last week, Paul prayed that Jew and Gentile, once separated by the dividing wall of hostility, would be rooted and grounded in love for one another. Now he's showing these Ephesian Christians, and subsequently he is showing us what this life of love looks like in the concrete, practical realities of everyday life. And notice that ultimately these five qualities of a worthy gospel walk look like Jesus. Jesus was the supreme example of humility when he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death on the cross. As for gentleness, Jesus says, I am gentle and lowly in heart. In his salvation experience, Paul tells us that he was on the receiving end of Christ's perfect patience. As for love, Jesus demonstrated it vividly in that while we were still sinners, he died for us on the cross. And as for being eager to maintain peace, Paul has already told us a couple of weeks ago that Jesus himself is our peace. So in calling out these characteristics, Paul is saying that the more we look like Jesus individually, and the more we live like Jesus relationally, the more united we will become. So, taking our example from Jesus, Paul says, with all humility, with all gentleness, with all patience, with all love, be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Listen, for unity to exist, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility... Count others more significant than yourselves. For unity to exist in the church, bear the spiritual fruit of gentleness and the way that you walk with others in the church. These two qualities of humility and gentleness link directly with being patient and bearing with one another in love. Do you remember what Paul wrote to the Corinthian believers in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 4? What did he say? Love is patient. 
Love is patient. Patient love endures annoyances. Patient love endures relational challenges. Patient love helps us in our marriages when our marriages get sideways. Patient love helps us when parents are trying to raise children. Patient love is to lead the way when we are interacting with neighbors that may or may not look like us, may or may not think like us, may or may not vote like us, may or may not believe like us. Patient love is to be the banner that flies over the born-again Christian's life in the workplace. Patient love endures relational challenges. Listen, patient love is quick to listen And patient love is slow to speak. Patient love is ready to extend the benefit of the doubt to the other person because patient love recognizes that while the members of the church are grounded in the common denominator of Christ, their multi-ethnic, multicolored, Jew-Gentile, man-woman, black-white, rich-poor, young-old experiences of life and backgrounds of life, when you bring these peoples together, there are going to be times when we bump heads because our experiences and backgrounds are just different. You can't ignore that fact. To be a black Christian and to be a white Christian, you've probably had different experiences. To be a rich Christian to be a poor Christian. You've probably had different background experiences in life. To be Jewish and Gentile, they had different backgrounds and experiences in life. And when this new entity of the church is all of a sudden consisting of this multi-diverse peoples, Paul is saying we will proclaim unity to the world around us when we're walking with humility and gentleness and patient love toward one another. We're not looking for uniformity We're looking for unity in diversity. Now, that's Robin Peter to pay Paul a little bit because that's where we're going to go next week. But that is the groundwork that Paul is establishing right now in these verses. So, when this multi-ethnic, multicolored entity called the church sometimes bumps heads because we are made up of people with various backgrounds and life experiences and perspectives. Instead of saying, boom, eject button, I'm out of here. These people don't look like me. They don't think like me. They don't act like me. They don't vote like me. They don't spend like me. They don't live where I live or whatever it might be. Instead of hitting the eject button, the moment difficulty comes, Paul says, do this instead. Be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. I love, 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 love that Paul used the word maintain there in that sentence. Maintain. Notice, you and I do not attain unity. We maintain unity. Unity in the body of Christ has already been attained by Christ through the cross. 
the one who attains unity across this Jewish-Gentile, black-white, rich-poor, young-old divide, the one who attains that unity, because remember, he has broken down the vertical hostility between us and God, and he has smashed down those dividing walls of hostility between human and human. He is the one, by his blood, in his flesh, through the cross, has attained the unity of the church. So what we are called to do is eagerly maintain what God has already attained by the strength of the Spirit's power. So do you see how Paul's prayer for power from last week is casting an immense shadow all over the back half of his letter? How in the world is a multi-diverse, multi-colored, multi-ethnic people in the church to walk in unity with different backgrounds, different perspectives, different life experiences? It's not because you have the power to do it. It's because of the power and the strength of the Spirit in us. You see, the unity of the Spirit is what binds Christians together as the church. The seal of the Holy Spirit, which is what he tells us we have back in Ephesians chapter 1, it's the seal of the Spirit that is the common bond that cements believers together in peace. So the question is, how do we maintain the spiritual unity. How do we maintain this spiritual unity? The answer is what I just got done telling you. It is by relying on the strength of the Spirit's power. You see, when we take Paul at his word, and when we pray for one another to be strengthened by the Spirit's power, listen, you are praying for the strengthening of the bond that cements Christians together in peace. That's one of the things that you're praying for when you say, oh God, oh God, please, I'm begging you. Would you strengthen the saints of Delta Church with the power of the Holy Spirit? Would you do this? One of the overflow implications is in that praying for the strengthening power of the Holy Spirit among the saints in this little local display of God's glory called Delta Church, what you're implicitly and maybe sometimes even explicitly praying for is this. God, strengthen the unity, the cementing bond of the Spirit in the lives of all of us who claim Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior so that what is visibly illustrated to the world around us is the unifying bond of peace based upon the unity of the Spirit found in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what you're praying for. This is amazing. Man, and I want this bond to be strong at Delta. I think this bond is strong at Delta. But I don't ever want to assume and somehow begin to coast. I want us to be a people who continually pray for these things. So the question is, do you want this unifying bond of peace, this unity of the Spirit to be visibly displayed to the world around us through the life of people of Delta? If your answer to that is yes, I want that, then Paul's prayer for power and love 
is a prayer that we should be praying for one another. Pray that we would be filled with the fullness of God like he prayed last week. Pray that we comprehend the love of Christ like Paul prayed last week. Pray that we would be strengthened by the Spirit's power to maintain the unity of the Spirit. Just imagine this. Imagine this. And we're going to touch on this here at the end. Did you know, my, my hunch is this, is that in light of the cultural moment that we're in, most of us, if not all of us as Christians, and I'm just honing in on Delta Church here, most of us are probably in a place where we go, man, I, 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 want, I want change. I want to see, see certain changes happen. But the question might be, I don't know what to do in order to bring about that change. Did you know that one thing you can do according to Ephesians 4 verse 3 is pray for the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace? So that the one entity in this world that has the purpose to display the unity that we have in Christ is the way we walk in unity with one another. No other organization can claim this God-given origin, this God-given purpose. So one of the things you can do is when you just feel your soul churning, going, God, what can I do? I want my gospel proclamation to eke out in the horizontal relationships of this world. I don't know what to do. Paul would say you can at least begin with prayer. God, strengthen the saints of Delta Church to be empowered by the Spirit to walk in a unifying bond of peace that is rooted and grounded in this common seal of the Holy Spirit. So as these peoples of Delta walk in this way, the visible illustration to the world around us is those, those folks are not like anything else we've seen. And then those things will begin to proclaim a different and a better message to the world around us. Praying this way, this is something that you can do. I'm not saying that's the only thing to do, but it should be the first thing that we begin to do. So lastly then, what will a healthy church do? What will a healthy church do to grow in spiritual unity? Paul says in verses four through six that we will stand on the indestructible unity of God himself. We will stand on the indestructible unity of God himself. Did you notice how he just keeps using the word, the word one in verses four through six? There is one body and one spirit. Just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Paul might be trying to tell you something if he keeps repeating the single word, one. And what is he telling us? I think he's telling us that, is that there is an indestructible unity to God himself. And it's upon that indestructible unity that the church is to stand. You see, once again in this letter, the Trinity, it just comes bubbling to the surface. Our unity rests in one spirit, one Lord, one God and Father. Our God is one in essence. Yet he is Father, Son, and Spirit. Co-eternal, co-equal, there is an indestructible unity that defines our, li our living God. And it's upon this foundation of the indestructible unity which the unity of the church rests. Paul says there is one body of Christ because there is one Spirit. 
There is one hope, one faith, one baptism, because there is only one Lord. Jesus Christ is Lord, and it is Jesus Christ in whom we've placed our faith. It is Jesus Christ into whom we've been baptized. It is Jesus Christ whose coming we wait for eagerly in hope. Lastly, the ultimate unity is found in the character of God himself, one God and Father of all who rules over all and works through all and in all. Friends, as we are strengthened by the Spirit's power, it is possible for us as a church to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel as we maintain the unity of the Spirit firmly grounded in the indestructible unity of God himself. And to borrow words from the prophet Zechariah, these things will not happen by our might, nor will these things happen by our power, but these things will happen by the Spirit. You see, spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places, they rage against the unity of the saints in the church. If they can sow seeds of disunity by somehow convincing the people of God to adopt the spirit of the age, that proud people, harsh people, impatient people, hateful attitudes, eager for exaltation, if these are the ways to go, if the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places can convince us of these things, then guess what? They will be happy to do so as they laugh all the way to the bank. If they can take us captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human traditions, they will be happy to do it. If they can lead us to embrace foolish controversies, embrace quarrelsome words, they will employ that scheme in the church. They will seek to do that among the people of the church. But in contrast, if we as a church move forward in the strength of the Spirit's power, walking with humility, walking with gentleness, walking with patience, walking with love, eagerly maintaining the unity of the Spirit, guess what? We will visibly demonstrate to the world that the unity we say exists indestructibly is a true and glorious reality. Because see, you guys are feeling the same tension I am right now. Our living God is defined by an indestructible unity. And the church, which is born of God, created by God, in the Lord Jesus Christ, stands on that same indestructible unity. There is an indestructible unity of the church. There's a reason why Jesus says to Peter, I believe, uh, the gates of hell are never going to be able to prevail against the church. Nothing is going to undo the church. There's an indestructible unity to the church because they, the church is founded on the indestructible unity of the living God himself. But you guys do what I do. You drive them down your street and you go, uh, there seems to be all kinds of destructible disunity among the church in the world today. And so the question is, what hope do we have of visibly demonstrating the reality of the indestructible unity of our God in a world which rages against that unity? It's going to come as we pray and trust and rest, begging God to strengthen us with the Spirit's power to walk in a way that is marked by humble gentleness patient love, eagerly maintaining what God 
has already attained in Christ. Friends, may Delta Church be such a reflection of this unity in our homes. May Delta be a reflection of this unity in our neighborhoods. May Delta be a reflection of this unity in our work and in our world. If our world needs anything right now, it is a picture of unity. Unity. And just think, God in his manifold wisdom has provided that picture to the world in the church. The church. Just imagine the answer to the rage of the hearts of men who are raging for unity. The last place they're thinking about unity is the church. God help us. May Delta be different, saints, as God dwells in us to where people in Springfield and Auburn go, you know what, man, I don't know much, but I do know this. Those people at Delta, man, they strike the tenor and tone of unity and then what we could do in those moments and say, not to us be the glory. We will not boast in us. It is because of the power of the Spirit among the people who just happen to consist of this little local display of God's glory. And then what we can do is just turn those little gospel doorknobs and begin to call people to be not only, um, not only know the horizontal reconciliations of the world, but to know the peace and reconciliation they can have with a living God. Saints, may God help us for the fame and the glory of his name. Let me pray for us. Jesus, help us with this picture of unity. Help us with this thing. Uh, we don't have what it takes to accomplish this in and of ourselves. We do not. We do not. So for the hundredth time, it seems, um, I'm going to just simply say we need the strengthening power of the Spirit. What we need is for you, God, to continue to work in us and through us so that the picture of unity that is displayed to the people before us is this picture of the one Spirit, the one Lord Jesus, the one God and Father to whom we have submitted our lives. God, come now and do your work in us so that we might be a tiny a sand speck, a tiny microscopic example in this world of what true and genuine unity looks like, a unity that is rooted and founded in the Spirit, in the bond of peace that he brings. It's in all these things I pray. In the name of our resurrected King, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.